Uh, let me bow and let me lead us in prayer, then you'll be finding 1 Samuel 30. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity you've given us, Lord, to come together in your word. And I do pray your healing to be upon our pastor and Trinity, Lord, and I pray your blessings to be upon them. And Lord, we're so thankful that you're with us through every experience of life. And Lord, so Lord, I pray power and virtue and blessing to flow out of you into them, to meet them at their every point of need. And Lord, may your word come alive today. Lord, keep my voice strong. And Lord, I pray that you'll just use this word, Lord, and seal it to our hearts that we may honor and obey you, Lord. And as uh, JP just led us in the singing, Lord, and the Holy Spirit prompted, Lord, to say that we surrender all to you, Lord. Bless us now this day. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're taking God's word, if you would, and be finding 1 Samuel chapter 30 in a moment, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 to get us started. Titled today, I'm going to bring a message entitled, Caught Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Anybody been caught between those places? Caught between a rock and a hard place. I remember one time for me, senior in high school, my family never owned a new car until after I left the house. And so uh, the newest car, the finest car that we ever owned was a Chrysler Newport. And so I remember driving it to high school. We had two vehicles, a truck. Dad drove to the plant because he worked at the plant there in Lake Charles. And then, so when mom didn't need it, I was able to drive the family car. So I drive it to high school that day. About 1030, one of my friends comes by who lived in the area where I did. And he said, hey, Scott, I, can I borrow the car, your car, because I have a book report due in one of my classes. And the, only, the book I need for my report is at the public library, which is just down the highway from our high school. And he said, I said, no, I don't know about that. My, my red flag went out. And he said, no, man, listen, I'm going to get in the car. I'm going to drive straight to the library, come back 1030 or 11 o'clock, rather. I'll be back and I'll bring you your keys. So against maybe my better judgment, I decided to give him the keys. <clears throat> 11 o'clock came, no friend. 1130, no friend. Lunchtime, knew I'd see him at lunchtime. No friend. Mid-afternoon, no friend. This was in the fall because I, I remember dressing out after school. We had football practice. So I remember going to the varsity dressing room, and the parking lot was right behind the dressing room, and so I'm dressing out. And when I suited up ready and I was walking out to go to the uh, practice field, all of a sudden my buddies start coming into the locker room as I was about to leave the locker room. And they said, man, Scott, you need to come outside. And they go, man, it's bad. I said, what are you talking about? He said, man, your dad's car, it's bad. I said, oh, get out of here. You're kidding me. So I stepped out the locker room, and, and when I looked over and I saw the green, it was an aqua green Newport, I saw the driver's side of the car. It looked great. I said, see, it's fine. I Moody, you need to go on the other side. When I got to the other side, now I'm caught between the rock and the hard place because my buddies are starting to rib me and kid me and say, man, you're a dead man when you get home. I was not prepared for what I saw. The right side, the passenger side of the car, the entire length of the car was a bunch of mangled, twisted, paint-free steel. Front quarter panel of the car, the, the, both of the front seat passenger door and the rear seat passenger just, just caved in. Back quarter panel of the car, bumper, just mangled. Yes, I was a dead man. So I knew I was going to have to go home and face Will Moody, my dad, uh, who did not give me permission to give my friend permission to take the family car. And so by the time I had, I was the longest practice in my life. No, actually, in some respects, it was the shortest, but in other ways, it was long. So when I finally get home, that my friend and his dad are in the den of our house with my dad when I walk in on that. Thankfully to say, I survived it. 
Uh, I would not advise kids, don't loan out the family car uh, if it's all possible. And so I remember that, and I was caught between that rock and that hard place, what to do, because I had two choices, receive the ridicule and the, and the kidding of my friends, or go home and face dad, although that was sort of an easy choice there, uh, give me the hard place. So you see, David was in such a, a scenario where he found himself caught between a rock and a hard place. In other words, two choices, and neither one of them are desirable. And so today we're going to see, and you remember, because our pastor started us in the book of Ruth, and he'll resume that when he's back. We're going to look at, remember the great-grandmother of David is Ruth and Boaz. Well, they had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. And David is the subject of our message here today. And if you know anything about the book of 1 Samuel, you'll know that it's, it's about David. First, it's about the, the abysmal failure of Paul, I'm sorry, Saul, the first king of Israel, when he was named king, tall, handsome, charismatic, uh, yet he had a he totally failed before the Lord in not seeking the Lord. And so God rejected Saul because Saul prior previously rejected him and now passed the kingdom on to David. David was summoned from the field with the sheep brought into the house of Jesse, his dad. Samuel was told by God, this is the king, anoint him. And so David was anointed king. It was a private anointing. It was a personal anointing. The world did not know about it. It had not made the evening news. So... David now had to live in this extended period of transition. During that time, Saul gets wind that David may be the next king. And so Saul becomes murderously jealous. And so he seeks to have David arrested, worse, killed. So David's on the lamb. And so now he flees and goes out and lives, you know, on the run from Saul. Well, one of the places that he goes is, is in the area near Phil Philistia. And he lives in a small town named Ziklag. Name was as small as its name. The town was as small as its name, Ziklag here. And this is where he lives. And our story picks up when, when David and his warriors, they leave the small town of Ziklag and they go help Philistia, Philistia when they're in one of their raiding bands. They're going to have a little battle and so David's going to go help them. The, the, the upside or the downside to that rather is the Philistines are about to go into battle. They look at David and say, hey, you know, you may not be loyal to us. We get, we get in the heat of battle. So why don't you go on back home? So David and his warriors leave the battlefield, come back to Ziklag, and when they get back, this is what they find. So stand as we give honor to the word of God. And let's look in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. The scripture says, Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. So while David is away, the Amalekites come and they ransack the city and they burn it and they take a whole bunch of hostages. Every woman and child that's left, they take as hostages. And so it says, they overthrew Ziklag, burned it with fire. They took captive both women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ohinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. 
For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters. But I love this. David pivots. But David strengthened himself in, his, in the Lord his God. Then David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for ye will surely overtake them, and ye will surely rescue all. So David went, he and the six hundred men who were with him, and he came to the brook Basor, where those left, those left behind remained. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor remained behind. May God add his very rich blessing on the reading of his word. You may be seated. The expression caught between a rock and a hard place probably originated in 1921 when a group of Arizona miners were on strike. They were protesting hazardous work conditions, low pay, they wanted more job benefits, and so they went on strike. Well, after a protracted period of being on strike, they were beginning to wonder, was it going to pay off? A newspaper writer covering the, covering the story for the newspaper talked, interviewed the miners, interviewed management, all of that, and came up with a phrase which stuck, caught between a rock and a hard place. Hard place. That is, the miners were caught between maybe the prospect of unemployment low wages, hazardous work conditions, and so they were sort of caught what to do. Well, I think about that today as I look at the life of David. Because you see, in a manner of speaking, David at this moment was caught between a rock and a hard place. Have you ever been there? Ever been caught between that rock and that hard place, having two choices and neither one of them really desirable? A dilemma, a true dilemma? You know, and, and really, you get up in the day, all of a sudden, you get the phone call, knock on the door, text, whatever it might be, letter in the mail, and the whole complexion of the day, indeed, the whole complexion of that season of your life has changed. And so we see that with David right here. David is now living with the Philistines because that's a lesser threat to him that he perceives, and Saul, sort of the lesser two evils or the evil of two lessers. I don't know who's worse, the Philistines or Saul. And so there he's living. And so they're going out and he decides he's going to go and, and, and be part of their raiding party. They send him home. So he comes back only to find out, seeing the smoke rise, they realize something's wrong. So they hasten their pace, arrive at the city, not a sound, nobody, nobody is there. Houses, homes are burned, the city is burned, and they're wondering what in the world happened. And they realized it was the Amalekites. If you recall also, Earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, Saul was supposed to kill all the Amalekites. If you remember that, Saul didn't do it. Do you realize that any time we disobey the Lord, it usually will cost other people? When I'm not the man that God wants me to be, when you're not the person God wants you to be, I choose to disobey God here, I choose to sin here, there, whatever. Inevitably, sure, I hurt, I, I, absolutely, I sin against God first and foremost, and I hurt that relationship, but also I hurt those around me when I choose that. And so Saul, if he would have taken them out, then they would not be bothering David and the, his residents of Ziklag now. And so that's what we see. So what I want to do is I develop this story. And look, oh, we're going to look at the text down through verse 20. What I want to do today is what should, how should we respond when we're caught, find ourselves caught between a rock and a hard place? 
I'm going to offer you three responses. Two of them are wrong, and one of them is right. Response number one, wrong response, we can look around. Now, not that there's anything wrong with looking around, but if, we, if that's all we do, if, our, if we just stay or stop at looking around and do not move beyond that, then that's where there's a problem. Now, look, if you will, at verse 3. David's now been sent back. Now, verse 3 says that when David and his men came to the city, behold, a looking verb to look, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. And so they're, they're looking around. So now as David is surveying the situation, assessing what is going on, now notice some actions that flow out of this response, which in and of themselves are not wrong unless we stay there. So notice action number one, notice there's weeping. Verse four says, then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep anymore. You ever been there? You ever cry out all the tears that you're able to shed? In other words, you, you, you're in something, you were in a season or a moment of heartache, grief, loss, whatever it might be, and it was so despicably hard, so unbelievably hard that you just cried till there were no more tears left to cry. David's right there. He's in this kind of a moment. I mean, can you imagine? He's over there trying to help the Philistines. They send him back home. He comes home only to find out that, that the homes, homes, been, homes have been destroyed. Families have been disrupted and taken. Now, how do I respond? Well, there's nothing wrong with weeping. You know, it, it's the devil's lie to say that, that uh, we shouldn't weep. Sure, we should. We, weeps. Someone described tears as the blood, the blood of the soul. Nothing wrong with that. David, many times in the book of Psalms, for example, describes himself as weeping before the Lord. But what I'm, my point is, if we just do that and then stay there, and, and, and we never move beyond that, that's where it's a wrong response or a misaction flowing from a wrong response. There's weeping. Notice a second response, the blame game. Look, if you will. Verse 5, we have a biographical note for David. His two wives have been taken, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, Abigail, remember the widow of the fool, Nabal, the Carmelite. Now look at verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed. We'll come back to that. Because the people spoke of stoning him. The people spoke of stoning him. You know, uh, there, there, there's, there's a hazard to being a leader, right? Uh, whether it's your fault, my fault, nobody's fault. In other words, if things, bad things happen, fingers usually point to the leader, and they're doing it right here. They're looking at David, and they're saying, you know what? If he would not have said, let's go help the Philistines, only to be sent home, by the way. If we had not left to go with the Philistines, we'd have been able here to stay home, protect our homes, protect our families, protect our goods. It would have been okay. And notice here, instead of that, we go out to help him in the, on this misbegotten task, only to come home and find out, the enemies come and wiped us out. It's David's fault. And so they play the blame game. But you know what? Isn't that as old as mankind itself? The, the idea to, to pass the buck, to pass blame. You remember when God comes to Adam and Eve in the, gar in the cool of the day in the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden after they had sinned and, uh, against and disobeyed God? And so God comes and he confronts Adam about it. And, and what, what does Adam do? She did it. Her fault. Right? And so then God looks at Eve and says, what about it? And he points to the serpent and says, he did it, his fault. And that's what we do. We, we love to pass the buck. We love, to, we love to, to lay blame. 
and we play the blame game. And so notice here it says, they looked at David, they pointed fingers at him, and notice it says they were ready to stone him. When I was a MDiv student in the Southwestern Seminary, one day I decided to go to the, to the archaeological exhibit in the library, and I looked at, uh, there was a section uh, on stones, and it was interesting, stones in Israel. I never thought about that. What I found when I looked at the exhibit was that stones were plentiful. I mean, you think about it like this, what pine trees are to Southeast Texas, stones are to Israel. Oh, Dr. Criswell used to say that when God was making the world and he was passing out stones on the planet, when he came to Israel, he sort of stubbed his toe and a bunch fell out of the bag into Israel. And what, what was really amazed me is I looked at the, the stones that were used, for example, in stoning people or even in a sling. Remember David's in the sling, he, he slung the stone and killed Goliath. That stone, typical size stones for stoning or, or using in a sling, they, they were like big as a baseball or even a softball. I'm thinking, good night, you put that in the sling and you let it fly, it's, it's a lethal weapon. Or can you imagine somebody saying, if we're going to stone you, they're not picking up a little bitty pebble, they're picking up a rock the size of a baseball ready to chunk it. And so here's David, I mean, the, the smoke is rising, tears are falling, notice they're playing the blame game and looking around and David says, <clears throat> they're looking at me. <clears throat> and all of a sudden they're picking up stones and they're walking toward David. They're ready to chunk. Now, I know that in situations that happen, sometimes people are at fault. And blame needs to be accepted. Responsibilities need to be fulfilled. I understand that. But the problem is, if we stop there, if we stay there, if we park there, notice a third misaction from this response, and that is bitterness. Look at, the, look at the text. <clears throat> it says, when the people are gathering stones, verse 6, for all the people were embittered, each one, because of his sons and daughters. The word there in Hebrew text means bitter to the soul. You see, bitterness may start at the surface, but it's like acid. And it will eat through to the guest down to the very core of our being. The Bible, the Bible writer says in Hebrews that the bitterness is like a root that will take, it will like a root that will take root. And you can't get rid of it. You ever tried to get rid of all the tallow trees in your yard? It's a root. You can't get rid of it. And so here, notice the text clearly says that people are ready to stone him, and they're bitter. And I want you to know, as we live life and things happen to us, things happen to you, things happen to me, I understand that. Harsh things, hard things, difficult things, we go through those seasons. And many times, as a believer in the Lord, I have to make a choice. Either am I going to choose to be bitter in this moment, or am I going to choose to move on and let the Lord give me his grace and see me through? You see, it's like this. Things happen in our life. Things come our way, and either they're going to make us bitter, and that's the typical response, right? Or God says, Romans 8, 28, they can make us better. Now, which is it going to be, bitter or better? It's your choice. It's your call. God's resources are available. Prayer is available. We'll see that in a moment. God's Word is available. The Holy Spirit is here. Are we going to let it make us better? Or are we going to let it make us bitter? I remember, and I've, I've told this before, but it is so vivid. A few years back, heading into Christmas, my dad was involved in an automobile accident. It ultimately cost him his life. 
And I remember it, it was coming into Christmas. It was one of my favorite times of the year. And here we are in the neuro ICU at his bedside. He's been unconscious, two brain surgeries. And I can remember just, just as vivid as I'm thinking of it right now. I remember at his bedside. And, and I, oh, I was wanting to be bitter. And I was thinking about that. That my dad at a red light, he was going, going to a Dollar General store to take back some Christmas cards that the envelope and the card didn't match. And he was going to go get the right envelopes. And he was minding his business, doing what he should be doing. And two other vehicles went through the intersection wrongly, hit, and then ended up on my dad and his truck. And here we are. You don't think I wanted to play the blame game? You don't think I didn't want to become bitter? You don't think I didn't want to pick up a stone and find them? And I remember thinking, Lord, I'm at a crossroads and I need your help. And I guess it was both a prayer and, and just a process in this one moment. It's like time stopped. And I remember looking at my dad and he wasn't responding and it wasn't looking good. And I remember thinking, Lord, I need your help. And I, I, I was just ready to be bitter. And the Lord, I'm a preacher. The Lord reminded me of a sermon. My wife and I were at a conference some years before that. And, and, a, and a, a, one of the preachers, one of the speakers got up and preached on the love of God. And this is what he said. And I'll never forget this. I, I emailed him after that moment and I thanked him and told him what happened. That's why hearing the preached word is so important. He preached on God's love, God's love for us. And he said, God's love is vast, nothing, nothing greater. God's love is vast. Second point, God's love is perfect. The only, our love isn't perfect, it's flawed. But God's love for you and for me is perfect. But here was the best part. God's love is personal. He loves me. And I said, Lord, I don't want to be bitter, and I realize you love me. And this is not what I would have chosen for my dad or for our family. I would not have chosen this, but it's here. And, Lord, I'm going to choose, and sometimes just by faith, Lord, I'm going to choose to believe that you love me even in this moment. And if you've seen me to this, you're going to see me through this. And it was, it was a pivotal moment in my life. It was a game-changing moment in my life in this experience. You see, I, and, and listen, not because of me, no, it's because of the Lord being faithful to his word, as we're going to see here before this message closes out, that God is faithful to see us through. And so we see here there was bitterness. But notice wrong response number two. And it's only wrong because if we stay there. Wrong response number two, we can look within. Notice, look around or look without. Look within. And now this is David, the leader. Now, so back in verse 6, when it said, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because of the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered. In other words, David now takes a look inside, and he realizes, look what's happened. The Amalekites have come. Ziklag is in ruin. Our families are gone. Our homes are destroyed. Look what's happened. Lord, I thought you loved me, and I thought I was going to be the next king of Israel. David's in distress. Stress is not wrong. Stress is a good thing. We couldn't play music if, the, if these guitars that were up here, if, if those strings were not stressed, if there were not tension on the strings, we couldn't have music. 
But the problem is when the stress is protracted and it's prolonged and we decide, I want to be stressed out rather than taking this to the Lord. And that's why it says David was distressed within himself. David would say in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3, David said, But truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. That's true for all of us. The psalmist would say in Psalm 73, verse 14, For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Sometimes we feel like that. And if left to ourselves, key, key point, left to ourselves, independent from God, we'll become distressed every single time. The problem is if we stay there. And I'm grateful to say David did not. Because now we come to response number three, the right response. We can look around, look without. We can look within. But the best is to look up. Let me paraphrase Dr. Warren Wiersbe. Dr. Wiersbe used to say that when the outlook is dim and grim, try the uplook. And that's what David does. David pivots. Look at the last part of verse 6. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. So now I want to give you five wonderful actions that flow out of this right response. There's the first one right there. When David decided to look up, look to the Lord, notice he finds spiritual strength that he, never, that he never had before. You find the source of your strength is in the Lord. He says he strengthened himself in the Lord. What did Paul say to the Corinthian church? He said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And David was in what, 2 Corinthians 12. When David came back to Ziklag and saw his wives gone, his children gone, families gone, city destroyed. You not think that was a moment of weakness? We remember Harvey. We remember Imelda. We remember Rita. Lake Charles with, with Hurricane Laura, Delta after that. I mean, we know about these things. We know about disruption and displacement. But in spite of all of that, as Dustin reminded us in the Lord's Supper, there is hope. Because God's on his throne. And Jesus still reigns. Find, when we engage in looking up, notice number one, we find our strength in the Lord. Notice number two, we seek the Lord in prayer. That's part of the uplook. Look at verse seven. It says, then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Himelech, please bring me the ephod. You know, that's that sleeveless garment. Some said it was, might even been a mantle that the priest wore when the, gate, when the priest put this on, when he, when he uh, would, would wear this apparel. He was ready to engage in the priestly ministry of intercession, prayer. That was a vital part of it. So David says, bring the ephod. Now, Samuel, the writer of the book of First and Second Samuel, had an agenda. The agenda was to show how the, David... And the Davidic dynasty were the legitimate heirs to the throne. And the pretender was Saul. You know why Samuel was able to make this case? It was at this very point right here. Because when Saul found himself in crises, Saul did everything but seek the Lord. In fact, the only time we really see Saul seeking the Lord is after Samuel dies. Then Saul goes to a spiritist, a medium, and in some alleged seance has allegedly now, has, has Samuel brought up from the dead? That's the only time Saul ever sought the Lord, and that was his downfall. On the other hand, one whom the Lord said, he is a man after my own heart, David, seeks the Lord. 
This is not the only time. This is not an exception. This is the rule in David's life. And so now David is a critical crossroads. I mean, the people are picking up rocks. They're ready to throw. People are bitter. People are angry. People are playing the blame game. David's in distress. Wait a minute. This has got to stop. Lord, I'm looking to you. I don't understand it, but I'm looking to you. And so that's what David does. And in that moment, he finds strength in the Lord that God is going to answer him and provide, and he prays. And so now notice what David does. He takes the ephod, and notice it says, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And notice God answers, basically, sick them. And God said, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them. And you, notice this, and you will surely rescue all. God says, Do it. Go after them. Which leads me to my third right, right response. In other words, find your strength of the Lord alone, pray, and then thirdly, take action. Take action as the Lord leads. You know, my problem is I'll pray, God answers. I don't like the answer. So rather than taking action, I say, Lord, if it's all saying to you, let's go into another prayer meeting here. Because I don't like plan A, right? So let's do it again, just have a do over, see if I can see if plan B is going to be better. That's not David. David says, Lord, shall I pursue? The Lord says, pursue. David says, all right, let's go. Take action when the Lord leads. Now, now, we should never take action unless the Lord leads. But when the Lord does lead, take action. I mean, true there is sometimes we stand still. What did, what did God tell Moses? Stand still and see what I'm about to do. And God opened the Red Sea, right? God, only God can do that. But later God tells Moses, get up. Let's go. It's time to take action. And so that's what David is going to do as the Lord leads him. And so notice what it says, verse 10, or verse 9. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where the, those left behind remained. But David pursued he and 400 men and 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor remained behind. David is in full speed pursuit. Why? Because the Lord answered. The Lord gave him an answer to prayer. Let me give you the fourth right action. Take action where the Lord leads. Number four, show kindness along the way. Show kindness along the way when possible. Now we come to this interesting account. Look at verse 11. It says, now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. Now, right away, I mean, don't, let's don't read past this. What's the first thing they do? They gave him bread and they gave him water to drink. I mean, they even gave him dessert, right? They, they gave him a pack of fig newtons, right? Gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. Then his spirit revived. Why? For he had not eaten bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. I mean, listen, that is kindness. David did not have to do that. David was not obligated to do that. And I want you to know, we're going to continue to read here in just a moment. And what David finds out in his intelligence that he receives from this Egyptian, what this Egyptian was a part of, makes David's kindness even more remarkable and unique and distinctive. Because David says, now tell me your story. Tell me, tell me about yourself. And so now notice, notice what the Egyptian says. Verse 13, to whom, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I am a young Egyptian from Egypt. A serv uh, notice this, a servant of an Amalekite. Are you kidding me? These are the ones that just came in and sacked Ziklag. 
and you were with him? He must have been because notice what he says. My master left me behind when I fell sick three days. We made a raid on the Negev, that's the south desert of the Carathites, and on that which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev, south desert of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Are you kidding me? David is showing kindness to this guy who was part and parcel of the whole raiding party. But yet this kindness is going to make a difference. Why? Because David is going to receive much needed intelligence from this man. Because notice he says in verse 15, Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this man? Show me where they are. He said, Swear to me by the God that you will not kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master. I will bring you down to this man. See what God is doing? Remember Elisha? Elisha was the prophet of sight. And it goes back, if you remember when, when Elijah was ready to leave and God brought down the fiery chariot. Elisha wanted a double portion of Elijah, his mentor's power and spirit. Elijah said, if you see me when I go up, you will receive it. So anywhere Elijah went, Elisha was sure to follow. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. In fact, when Elijah's mantle fell from the fiery chariot, Elisha went and got it. And immediately he received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Syria was sending in raiding parties into Israel. And one time the raiding parties came in right there in front of Elisha, number of soldiers. And Elisha prayed. Remember, he's the prophet of sight. He prayed and all of these soldiers, Syrian raiders, lost their sight. Immediately they were, they were stricken with blindness. I'd sort of like to have that power on some enemies, right? The king of Israel says, hey, we've got them where we want them now. Let's wipe them out. A blind man can't defend himself. Elisha said, no, don't. So the king says, what do you want to do? Elisha said, feed them. They, Elisha said, give them a banquet and gave them a banquet. I mean, fed them like this Egyptian was fed. I mean, a, a, a beautiful banquet of food. The king is dumbfounded. He can't believe it. Then the king says, what are we going to do now? Elisha restored their sight, and Elisha said, now let them go back home. The king said, are you crazy? We have them where we want them. Elisha said, let them go. And they went home. But now here's the key. The text clearly says that when those Syrian raiders got back home, that the, Syri the Syri Syrian raiding parties stopped and came no more into Israel. You see what the sword couldn't accomplish, kindness did. Is it any wonder now Jesus said, turn the other cheek? Is that not what Jesus did for you and for me? J.D. Greer's wonderful book, The Gospel, that I'm reading right now, J.D., and I'll sort of spin off of what he said. He said, if you've ever come to moments where you want to doubt the compassion, the love of God, just think of the cross. Isn't that true? I mean, Jesus died for you and he died for me, so... All I need to do is think of the cross. That removes all doubt. What Jesus did for me, what Jesus did for you. I should never doubt or deny his love for me if he died for me, right? And I want you to know when I find myself caught between a rock and a hard place, there are moments I, I want to doubt God's love plenty, but I shouldn't do it. And then he said, if, you, if, you doubt, if you're tempted to doubt the power of God, think of the open tomb and the resurrection. And that should remove all doubt.
And that's an argument from greater to lesser. If Jesus loved me to die for me, if Jesus exerted his power for me to come out of the tomb on the third day, I should never deny or doubt his power. So when I find myself caught between the rock and the hard place, I have both. I have Jesus' love and I have his power. What a blessing and what a resource. You see, David showed kindness and it made all the difference. The last right action, and maybe this is more of a consequence than an action. Number five, we receive the Lord's blessings in his victory. We receive the Lord's blessings in his victory. Now look, if you will, verse 16. It says, when he brought him down, behold, now again, another term to look. Behold, they were spread out. That is, that is the Amalekites. They were spread all over the land. They were everywhere eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. I love Westerns movies, the old Western TV shows, and the old typical scene, those of you who are familiar with that genre of movies are filming, you know, think of the bank robbers who robbed the bank, right? And they think they're successful. And so they, 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 they flee and they get out way out of town, out in the woods somewhere, and it's nighttime, somebody has a big crate of booze, they bring that, and so they build a big old campfire, and they break out the booze, and I mean, they're celebrating, right? They've robbed the bank, they got all the money, but what they don't know is an old feisty, rugged U.S. Marshal, he's on their tail with his deputies and the posse. And so while they're down there in their revelry and they're celebrating, he, the Marshal is secretly surrounding them with his deputies, and his, at his command, they're going to attack. And the gang is going to be captured or wiped out. That's exactly what's about to happen. The wrath of God is about to descend on the Amalekites. So now notice what happens. It says in verse 17, in a real economy of language, it just says, David slaughtered them. If you have a, if you have a King James Bible, it says David smote them. That's a good word, isn't it? it? Makes me think of the Lord of the Rings, right? David smote them. That means he thoroughly whipped them. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. 24 hours, David engages them in battle and wipes them out. Notice not a man of them escaped except for 400 young men who rode out on camels and fled. They didn't have the big trucks in that day or the cars, so they, you had fast camels, right? So those who had the benefit of the camel and the camel keys, you just dumped on the camel and you take off. So these men escaped, but everybody else was wiped out. Verse 18. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, all of it, notice all means all, and had rescued his two wives, but nothing, notice this, this is how complete this victory is, nothing of theirs was missing. Jesus said, if you come to me, I'll, I will in no wise cast you out, and I will lose none whom the Father gives me. None of them was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David bought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. Do you see the picture here? David's victory is so complete that they recover all the hostages, all their family members. No one lost, no loss of life. They even recover their livestock. 
I think of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about the son of David, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Davidite, Jesus Christ, when he said he led captivity captive, that when he died on the cross, remember, no, can't doubt God's love. When he came out of the tomb, can't doubt God's power. And then he went to be with the Father, the ascension is recorded in Acts chapter 1. Paul said in that moment, he led captivity captive. And he leads a glorious procession of those who know him and belong to him and believe in him, a glorious, victorious campaign, if you will, a victory parade right into the new Jerusalem. And he's going to lead us there one day. And no one, no one, the enemy may have designs on the Lord's own, but they, the, the enemy will not be successful. The devil may try to defeat the Lord's own, but the enemy will not be successful. And we're going to go into glory one day, every one of us, because, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. Let me give you the big idea, something to tell you. We're going to, I want you to turn in a moment to one passage of Scripture, and we're going to be done. Here's the big idea. When you find yourself caught between a rock and a hard place, take your stand on the strongest rock of all, Jesus Christ. When you find yourself caught between a rock and a hard place, take your stand on the strongest rock of all, Jesus Christ. Now, one thing we're going to do, and then we'll be done. Go to Psalm 18, if you will. Psalm 18. We're just going to read just a few passages there. Psalm 18. This, this psalm was written by David, as the first 50 psalms were. And this psalm was written in the same season of David's life, when he's on the lamb, on the run from Saul. He's not the king yet, but yet he's been anointed king. And God delivered him through many close brushes, close calls. And David now is acknowledging what God has done. So I want you to look at Psalm 18. Look in verse 1. Psalm 18, verse 1. Notice what David says. Remember now, we've talked about God's love for us. Now notice what should be our response. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Then look what he says about God in verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Lest we don't get it, he says it again. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. You see what David says? Lord, you're my rock. You're the strongest rock of all. Now, skip down if you will. Just stay in Psalm 18. Move ahead to verse 30. Psalm 18, verse 30. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. You know, you can try God's word when you're caught between a rock and a hard place, and it'll prove itself true, trustworthy, and genuine. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Look at the next verse. He says, Lord, you gird me with strength. Now skip down to verse 46. Or verse 46. One last time in this psalm, he, he affirms, notice, he says, the Lord lives and blessed be not just a rock. He said, blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Is the Lord your rock? You see, many times we find ourselves caught between a rock and a hard place, but when those times come, just stand on the rock that is harder than any other rock and, and, and harder than any other hard place. Stand on the Lord. Arthur and writer uh, Sinclair Ferguson 
tells of a time when he went to South Africa and toured one of the famous diamond mines in the world, the, uh, the De Beers Diamond Mines in Kimberley, South Africa. And he tells of going down in the, in the, in the man lift in the elevator down to the very bowels of the earth. And while he was there, you could feel the rumbling and the shake, feel the shaking of the earth as they were blasting away. Miners were at work blasting away trying to extract diamonds from the, from the, the clutches of the rocks deep down in the darkness of the earth. In fact, the De Beers diamond mine in its peak would remove 16,000 tons of earth a day. 16,000 tons of earth a day for just a couple of handfuls of diamonds. What he wasn't prepared for, when he made his way back up the elevator, the tour guide said, we have to stop. It's sealed. When the elevator doors open, you're in a sealed room because everybody had to be searched. Because they found that when anybody goes down while the blasting is going down, it shakes and, and, and the rock, rock particles fall. Sometimes diamonds would fall. And before they started searching, people were literally leaving. Sometimes un, some unwittingly didn't even know it because diamonds would fall in the hair. I don't have to worry about that. But anyway, uh, you know, maybe in your pocket or whatever, caught in your clothes. And so everybody had to be searched. Also, there were some unscrupulous people that would, they would see something glitter without nobody looking. They reach it, they put it in their pocket. So everybody was searched before they could leave the room. Then, then Ferguson makes this application. God has quarried place within each and every one of us the rich mineral deposits of his word and his truth within each and every one of us. And sometimes he lets us go through some shaking so that those minerals might be extracted. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, God's going to let things be shaken out and the things will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. God allows you to be caught between a rock and a hard place. He allows you to be caught in a season of hardship. Shakes you. Some diamonds fall out here and there. Others come along and pick them up. A diamond of your testimony. A diamond of watching you in these hard moments. And you're living true to the word of God. And you're following Jesus. And you're loving him. And they're watching that. And you know what? You, you're, you're bringing value to their life. Because you're turning their heart toward God. Because they're watching you. And they see how you're going through something. They're seeing how you're going through hardship. They're seeing how you're responding when you're caught in a rock and a hard place. And by, based on the virtue and the value of your life. Your diamond-like moments that you're providing for the Lord. You're slowly turning their hearts toward God. So that's why, if for no other reason, that's why God allows us to be caught between a rock and a hard place. Because God's extracting those diamonds that have been quarried deep within you so that you can use that to enrich and bring value and turn others toward himself. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, thank you for this time, for this opportunity you've given us, Lord, to come together. And Lord, thank you for your truth, Lord, that we've had today. And Lord, I pray that as we go forth from this place, we're always told to go be the church. But Lord, help us to realize afresh and anew that as we go out today, Lord, we go out with the realization, the full realization, Lord, that you have placed something so valuable within us. And sometimes you want it to just come out a little bit so the world can see it. 
and the world can be changed by it. Lord, thank you for who you are, Lord Jesus. You're our rock. You're my rock. You're the strongest rock of all. Lord, like when you were here 2,000 years ago and how you faced the fires of affliction and yet you remained true, Lord, you allow us to do the same today. So, Lord, may we go forth with this full awareness and a fresh commitment and desire, Lord, to take the right actions that David models for us, to look up, to pray, to seek you, to find our strength in you, to show kindness when we can, take action when you lead us, and we'll receive the blessings, Lord, of being in the battle with you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. Bless us now as we go forth from this place. Lord, I pray for our pastor and Trinity. May you bless and help them. Lord, heal, help, and hover close by. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. As we're always said, every, told every week, go and be the church. Maybe share some diamonds as the Lord leads you in your life. God bless you. We're dismissed.